I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The Washington Post economic columnist Catherine Rampell began a recent op-ed with the sentence, desperate political leaders of all stripes, Republican, Democratic, Communist, have found a common enemy, free trade. While there is an increase in trade restrictions in the Trump administration that the Biden administration has largely not reversed, and nationalists and populists in other countries have also pushed for more trade barriers, it is important to understand that international trade has never been unfettered. Trade policies are pursued for a range of reasons. A new report by leading trade experts entitled Remaking Trade for a Sustainable Future recognizes that the multilateral trade system is at a critical juncture and it proposes policies to preserve open trade while also fostering a range of environmental, social, development, and economic goals. My guest on Econofact Ch- Chats today is one of the co-authors of that report, Professor Joel Trackman. Joel is an internationally recognized expert on trade law, and I'm very glad to say my colleague at the Fletcher School of Tufts University. Joel, welcome back to Econofact Chats. Thank you, Michael. Joel, to introduce this topic, could you briefly recount the ways in which the trade policy of the world has evolved in the post-World War II era? Okay, that's a, a big ask, but I'll try to do it really quickly. Um, the 1947 General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was a leftover from a plan to have a bigger, more um, a, an institution with broader coverage that would have been part of the Bretton Woods uh, institutions. After that, there were a number of rounds of tariff reducing negotiations that were very successful over time in, in reducing worldwide tariffs, especially among wealthy countries. There was a round of decolonization after 1947 and, and by 1964, uh, that GATT system, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, uh, sought to incorporate concerns of developing countries. Uh, by 1979, you started to see talk about non-tariff barriers, regulatory barriers, product standards. Then we had the 1986 to 1994 Uruguay round, which included intellectual property and services. Uh, and on the first day of 1995, they formed the World Trade Organization, which is the organization charged with trade today. Uh, by 1999, there was the Seattle Ministerial, where we sometimes called it the battle in Seattle, where environmental protesters raised questions and uh, concerns. And then in 2001, you had the Doha development agenda begin, um, and that's uh, not really concluded. It's produced a, a few smaller things, but, but has been generally a failure. At the same time, China joined the World Trade Organization. 
And the rise of China has been a, a big challenge to this system and, and in part uh, led up to what Catherine Rampell has spoken of, the, the scapegoating of China uh, and uh, indirectly the, or, or, or by virtue of that, the scapegoating of the trade system for the economic problems of the United States that Trump began. And Biden, uh, in, uh, in, in order to maintain his electability, I think, has continued uh, to scapegoat trade. At the same time, we've had uh, the rise of these modern issues of e-commerce, of sustainability and sustainable development, which is the focus of uh, my work, and of uh, security and, and weaponized interdependence in this area. So you mentioned sustainability is a focus of your work, and it's also a focus of your report. What are more specifically the sustainability goals that you discuss in your report? Well, uh, there are two main categories, environmental sustainability and, and a kind of social sustainability, which, which really works out to be a kind of political sustainability. On the environmental side, we have a, a, a climate crisis, which uh, I think everyone now sees in, uh, in uh, different kinds of events. And the goal there is net zero uh, greenhouse gas by 2050. The G20 has uh, asserted that goal. Um, biodiversity is being destroyed. And so uh, we want to try to reduce that destruction. That's also a, a crisis. There are things that are less crises, like plastics pollution on sea and on land, uh, and, and a goal of circular trade that supports all sorts of environmental um, benefits. And then on the social side, we have the, you know, the, the important one, the politically salient one of labor protection. Um, we have the goal of promoting micro and small and medium enterprises, especially in, in developing countries. Uh, gender participation and 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 a traditional one of a social safety net. Uh, so the the idea that in order to maintain the political support for trade, it's important to take care of those whose um, whose work is disrupted to have a social safety net. So this is putting a lot on trade. And in the report, you and your co-authors identify natural linkages between trade and sustainable development goals as well as constructed linkages. What do you and your team mean by these different types of linkages and how is trade associated with these sustainable development goals? It's a great question. Uh, trade can intensify certain types of production and consumption uh, and that alone can cause environmental degradation. Uh, economic actors uh, like firms and uh, countries can seek competitive advantage by externalizing the costs of environmentally or, or socially harmful action, uh, including international external externalization like greenhouse gas emissions. And then similarly, they can uh, provide subsidies that can have distortive effects and, and also adverse effects for sustainability through intensification of unsustainable production methods, uh, especially in areas like agriculture and fishing. Uh, and the European Union has been particularly concerned in the greenhouse gas area that trade can cause leakage in response to national regulation where 
production shifts to other locations with lower regulatory costs and the associated environmental harms are, are simply shifted rather than actually reduced or, or eliminated. In addition, trade can put pressure on national env environmental or, or labor regulation that imposes costs on domestic producers and, and might competitively disadvantage them in, in the international marketplace. So th there's a concern that trade can cause disruption of the social bargain in an importing country. And, and then um, that's, a, that's a response to, to leak, leakage and this related um, in political pressure. So you mentioned ways in which climate is affected by trade. What kind of policies do you advocate to slow or reverse climate change? Well, um, one way to reverse climate change, obviously, is to reduce greenhouse gases. That's that's the way I should say. And there, the idea that makes the most sense is to impose a, a global greenhouse gas price to avoid that kind of uh, leakage and to have uh, kind of a coherent global policy. That, that, of course, raises questions about the way different countries can do that and, and who's responsible. Um, one, one idea, though, is to try to make sure that as countries over these things, that they preserve trade to avoid greenhouse gas-based or carbon-based trade wars and to allow fair border adjustments. As you know, the European Union has uh, developed a carbon border adjustment mechanism that is designed to impose on imported goods the kind of carbon pricing that they charge internally. And so they're in order to make that kind of system fair, uh, we need to have a system for interoperability. So other methods of addressing climate change, like simply protecting uh, your forests or like uh, the United States Inflation Reduction Act system of subsidies can be given credit in that system. Uh, we also need agreed methods to calculate the embedded greenhouse gases in particular products. And finally, we need fairness to um, rebate uh, these carbon border adjustments to developing countries and to recognize this principle of common but differential responsibilities uh, that uh, that we've accepted in the Paris Agreement under the U United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Control, that it makes sense to have different ways of imposing burdens on developing countries compared to wealthy countries. In addition, we need to regulate fossil fuel subsidies uh, and discussions have begun at the World Trade Organization on that. We need to regulate agriculture and fishing subsidies that can have climate effects. Uh, we need to liberalize trade in green goods and services and technologies so that countries can cheaply import those things in order to achieve uh, climate goals. Uh, and finally, we need to um, agree on product standards for deforestation and other climate related issues. And then I, th I think one thing we can do in, in terms of the constructed linkages is to link trade to climate action and to recognize the fact that uh, wealthy countries have terms of trade power and they can use that terms of trade power to establish conditions for uh, trade. And, and those conditions may have to do with sustainability. 
So you may recall that uh, the economist William Nordhaus from Yale proposed climate clubs to use trade power to punish non-adherence to climate reduction goals through special tariffs. And so that's the kind of thing that could be used to implement some of these ideas. So there's a lot to unpack with that. It's a very good comprehensive answer, Joel. First off, when you talk about goods that embed greenhouse gases, I guess a good example of that would be, for example, cement, right? Yes. Because the production of cement involves the use of a lot of energy and so on, correct? That's right. And also when you talk about the terms of trade effect, maybe for our listeners, that's when a country is big enough that it's it can, for example, restrict the supply of a good and force up its price. And that's kind of like a monopoly power, right? Yes. And that's why wealthy countries can charge tariffs um, and benefit themselves by collecting those tariffs and, and causing the exporter to bear that cost. And similarly, I think terms of trade power can be used to cause exporters to change their climate policies, for example. So you talked about in your answer, both um, tariffs and subsidies. And typically when you learn about this in kind of basic international trade, you learn about the distorting effects of tariffs and subsidies. But your report offers a framework for thinking about the trade-offs between the distortions introduced by tariffs and subsidies, which reduce economic efficiency and the ways in which these can be used to realize sustainability goals. Can you talk a little bit about that trade-off? Well, first of all, I think at least in the United States and maybe in some other places, industrial policy has experienced a, a bit of a resurgence in the United States in the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS uh, policy. But um, the trade system in the past has uh, addressed subsidies by uh, reducing the ability to externalize the effects of your subsidies by allowing foreign countries to um, charge countervailing duties to absorb uh, the subsidy that is put on a good and also to prohibit certain kinds of subsidies or, or require certain kinds of subsidies to be removed. And that has all been based on the trade distorting effect. In, in our project, what we have done is try to raise the concern for the environmentally harmful effect that subsidies can have in, in areas like fossil fuels or agriculture or, or fisheries or, or, or some kinds of manufacturing too like steel or uh, cement, as you've mentioned. And the idea is to recognize what seems very important to countries, which is to maintain their autonomy, their so-called right to regulate, uh, but to uh, constrain their ability to externalize uh, harms to others. And, and here, both um, competitive harms, but also um, sustainability harms. And so um, there, there are good reasons for subsidies in, in market failures in the environmental area. And often environmental problems like climate change involve market failure. So it makes sense to have some subsidies there. And we want to make sure that the trade system is revised 
to permit those kinds of environmentally sound subsidies where their trade distorting effects are not excessively large. And on the other side, to prohibit subsidies that are uh, harmful to sustainability or sustainable development, and uh, especially where their uh, benefits in other areas are, are not very large. That, that requires a, a lot of evaluation and, and judgment, but we think it's important to uh, be able to have good policy in this area. Another point that you and your co-authors raise in the report is one of standards product standards. So these product standards can help realize sustainability goals. But as you point out, there's a potential tension because they can also hurt developing countries that would find adhering to these standards prohibitively expensive. And there's this other issue of whether standards apply to products or to the way that the products are made. And so this then raises a different standards issue, labor standards. How do you think these tensions could be resolved? Well, they're they're difficult, um, and, and it's a it's a hard question to answer. Standards are everywhere in modern production of goods and services, and as you say, we have new standards that relate to the way goods are produced. And of course, goods are produced in the exporting country, so those standards are a way for the importing country to reach out and try to regulate the way goods are produced in the exporting country. And the reasons they do that, for example, in the area of climate change is, is because those uh, foreign standards, those lax uh, climate standards in foreign countries have uh, adverse effects across borders. Uh, now, standards have proliferated. There are a lot of these sustainability standards and, and there are two main types. There are private standards developed by industry associations and by um, private consumer, consumer groups. And there are governmental uh, required standards, mandated standards. And um, in the WTO system, once international standards are made uh, by, for example, the International Organization for Standardization, countries have to base their national standards on those international standards. So in our report, in order to reduce inefficient diversity of standards, and also in order to make sure that those standards are not excessively burdensome for developing countries or small, small producers, we recommend making more international standards in the sustainability area with a more inclusive process that is attentive to the needs and, and capabilities of developing country producers. Uh, so some, some areas in which sustainable development standards are needed are greenhouse gas measurement, as I mentioned before, deforestation, biodiversity, fishing and marine products, uh, core labor rights, uh, circular commerce is very much standard dependent. Uh, and the broad area, which is an area that might present some opportunities for developing countries of digital commerce, is also very standard dependent on things like privacy and, and competition. So the tensions with developing countries and protection for marginal producers can only be addressed through, uh, I think, an inclusive process that recognizes their capabilities and needs and provides technical and, and financial support for uh, transitional uh, periods during which they adapt to those new standards. So this discussion of standards 
raises a broader issue, Joel, an argument that today's poorer countries are being hampered in their development through trade rules that today's rich countries didn't have to follow as they grew wealthier, like rules on labor or environmental standards. How does your report address these issues? It's another difficult issue. Uh, Developing countries believe it's unfair to require them to expend scarce resources or forego development to address the climate problems, uh, which are caused by the stock of greenhouse gases, mostly produced by wealthy countries um, over time and, and by, by, by their production over time and their consumption today. But, but the problem is that the poor countries are often the most vulnerable to climate change. And so while arguments about fairness are are rarely persuasive in this context, developing countries uh, need to use their bargaining leverage and and they have advantages in solar energy and in uh, having younger workforces that may allow them to um, attract investment and to grow. So our our project suggests ways to promote uh, that kind of investment in developing countries to use these advantages for development. Uh, It's too late for developing countries to follow a low environmental protection path to development, um, especially for these global environmental issues like climate change and biodiversity destruction. And and so other paths have to be found. So you talked about sort of the self-interest of developing countries, but this brings us to the issue of the enforcement mechanism for realizing these goals. Within a country, of course, there's a judicial system that people need to adhere to. Otherwise, they're going to face fines or even imprisonment. But international enforcement mechanisms aren't as robust. And countries could just opt out or refuse to comply. And I guess they would be likely to do so if they think the cost of complying greatly exceeds the benefits of staying within the multilateral trade system. So how do you and your co-authors think about the enforcement of the kinds of policies that you're talking about? Is it something beyond enlightened self-interest? It's tough to uh, make new rules. And in this sustainability area, we need to make new rules in this international system where um, each country's consent is required. Um, And and in a sense, if they've consented to these rules, we, we hope that they will comply with them. Uh, But the first question is how to get them to consent. And uh, here we need to release, we need to adapt and develop different forms of reciprocity, different forms of bargains, different forms of cross-functional bargains. And we also need cross-functional leadership in this network of international organizations that have different mandates, like the United Nations Environment Program or the WTO or the IMF. Um, And these organizations want to protect their own turfs and their own goals. So in order to enforce these new rules, uh, we need to use that reciprocity. We'll need uh, the same types of things that cause states to enter into the rules in the first place, that that transactional reciprocity in which commitments are reliable because the threat of retaliation through withdrawal of reciprocal commitments is credible. But the good news is that many of these sustainable development dimensions can be understood as uh, helpful to all. 
So strong incentives for compliance may not really be needed. We just need to get off the mark and get to work to establish these ideas as uh, legal rules and uh, norms that, that countries will follow. Well, Joel, I know that you and your co-authors have been working hard on this report for more than two years and that you'll be presenting it to policymakers throughout this autumn and into next year. And I hope your work receives the attention it deserves and has an impact on trade policy. So thanks very much for joining me today to discuss this very important work. It's my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.